Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Monday, September the 5th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, we, of course, are here in the city of Detroit, uh, where uh, the program uh, we're having uh, tonight coincides with the concluding day of the 2022 Detroit Jazz Festival. During the course of this program, we will feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the criticism by people in Ghana over the governmental decision to seek yet another loan from the International Monetary Fund. The Ethiopian government has reported capturing dozens of TPLF rebels fighting against the national military forces. There are still difficulties in holding inclusive talks with the various tendencies and the military regime inside the Republic of Sudan. And Somalia is suffering from malnutrition among growing numbers of civilians inside the Horn of Africa state. In the second hour, we listened to an interview uh, with jazz vocalist, a jazz vocal artist, uh, Diane Reeves, uh, who is from the city of Detroit. She talks on uh, the legendary Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, the interview was conducted by the Library of Congress. And finally, we pay tribute to the legendary jazz pianist from Memphis, Tennessee, Phineas Newborn, Jr. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Right now, we're going to go to our musical interlude, and we have uh, three amazing uh, African women vocalists and composers, uh, Angelique Kijo from Benin, uh, Diane Reeves from Detroit, and Liz Wright, uh, also from the United States. Uh, they're playing live at the Jazz Warche and Bugassan uh, some three years ago. Let's listen in. Good evening, everybody. How are y'all doing? How are y'all doing? All right. So it's a celebration today. Not a funeral, please. Swing is jazz, but we can swing. Without swing, there's no jazz. Right? Don't we have that, right? So now, we're bringing a little bit of talking heads into the middle of the jazz. So let's hit, listen to it. <laughs>
to be here with you this evening, sharing uh, our love, you know. So right now, this um, stage is really not a stage. It's a, it's a playground. And we came here to all have a whole lot of fun with my sisters and my brothers.
without even just saying her name. That's right. Aretha Franklin. Franklin. Who always taught us how to do one thing. Be yourself. Be real. Get out there and let them know who you are. This is for Aretha Franklin.
up there and listen to these ladies. I get to sit in the prime seat and listen to these beautiful ladies. It's extraordinary and having a good time. You guys having a good time? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you feel that. You feel the love and the light. The love and the light is the most important thing, especially when the darkness is trying to descend. So keep your light shining bright. We're going to continue and pay more tribute to the great Nancy Wilson. Actually, uh, actually, we're not talking about her right now. No, we changed. No, the we're gonna change the subject. You gonna take it now? Yeah, we're gonna do it na later on. Right? And use it. You know, stuff happens. <laughs> we gonna Having take too it. much fun and we get tired yeah, of it. And I took my glasses off so I can't read. Oh, so but I love you though. That was a beautiful introduction. We both well, our glasses. We've been stupidly pretty. Yeah. <laughs> he can't see shit. <laughs> we blind. <laughs> Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, the beautiful, the graceful, the lovely, I mean lovely, Miss Liz Sprite.
about this world that there's so much beauty in the world we travel all over the place and the thing that I can say for sure that there are more beautiful kind loving generous people in the world than there are those who wish to tear it down so 
This song is for the one who would like to tear it down. But guess what? We just ain't going to let it happen. It ain't too late
cultures have what they call Thai cheek. We have hum cheek. Because a hum will get you through a whole lot of things. And it can also mean a lot of things. Well, this little melody goes like this. So just listen. And then come on in and sing with me. It goes like this. Whoa, If I'm here tonight before you, it's because one, it's because of this woman. And I'm not gonna sit here and try to tell you who she is, nor the song we're gonna be doing. Because I can guarantee you that if you don't recognize the song, you are not living on planet Earth. Yeah. Everybody laughs all the time. Sometimes you don't know, sometimes you know. So let's see if you are a connoisseur. Let's do this. No, I got it off and off. Yo, yo, baby girl. <laughs>
you make it worthwhile. Everybody's leaving before day to get on the plane to get out of here, but we're already flying, so we're halfway home. <laughs> yeah, we Oh, yeah. This next song, we're going to do it nice and easy. Because we like it nice and easy and funky and down low and feeling good. We're not going to do it rough and wild. We're going to do it nice. We're going to be even bad. But
all of this music, every bit of this music was arranged and organized by our band leader, my mentor, my sister, Terry Lynn Carrington. Okay, one more time for Manolo Badrena on percussion. The great Manolo Badrena. From Weather Report and Mama Jamal and so many people. From Puerto Rico, Edmar Colon on saxophone and synthesizers. And organ. Organ debut. And on the guitar, Christopher Bruce. And on the bass, Ben Williams. And holding it down for us on the keyboard, John Power. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a beautiful night. Again, incomparable Diane Reed and on Nikki Thank you so much. Lead right and she's on. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, sound of Angelique Kijo, Diane Reeves, and Liz Wright uh, doing a comp- compilation of uh, compositions uh, live, and uh, Diane Reeves was a very important um, artist in residence uh, at this year's uh, 2022 Detroit Jazz Festival. Uh, she uh, last evening uh, did a duet uh, with uh, African-Cuban composer and pianist uh, Choco Valdez. And uh, tonight uh, headlining uh, with her own band uh, doing an effrontery of uh, music uh, here in the city of Detroit, uh, Diane Reeves uh, from the city of Detroit. And we'll hear an interview, extensive interview with uh, Diane Reeves uh, speaking to the Library of Congress, uh, talking about uh, the legendary Ella Fitzgerald as well as other issues uh, later on in our program. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines from today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Mr. Kenneth Thompson, the Chief Executive Officer of Dialect Finance, has said Ghana needs effective economic management measures rather than seeking bailouts. From the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. IMF is a circus that attracts attention but doesn't deliver much. But with discipline and dedication, we can build our own country without relying on foreign aid, he said. Mr. Thompson said this is at the Stakeholders Engagement and Workers Appreciation Day organized by the Tema Regional Office of the Ghana News Agency to address issues of national concern and contribute to development. Ghana, since independence, has sought bailouts from the IMF 17 times and is currently in the process of signing on to another program 
of the International Monetary Fund. Speaking on the topic, navigating through the current economic crisis with or without the IMF, Mr. Thompson said the country must have a paradigm shift in attitude and deeds to break the cycle. He called for measures such as reduction in expenditure and the number of government appointees, cuts uh, in tax exemptions to foreign companies, as the country lost huge amounts of money annually to such exemptions, an efficient collection of taxes to increase revenue and bring the economy back on track. Mr. Thompson said there was a need to block loopholes and deal with unprofitable state-owned enterprises, saying the right incentives must be put in place to change behaviors in those sectors. He advocated greater investment in agricultural tourism and the service sectors by encouraging more indigenous to venture into these businesses, saying, quote, there is no foreigner who will develop the country but us, unquote. And in other news, in the Horn of Africa, uh, there have been uh, reported arrest of uh, TPLF operatives in the Wangura zone of the Amhara region of Ethiopia. It is one of the Amhara regions that is sharing administrative boundaries with the Tigray region of Ethiopia. As many as 50 alleged TPLF infiltrators were reportedly arrested. The Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation, Ethiopian State Media, on uh, Sunday cited Sebu Gebayal, uh, who is head of the zone administration, as saying that over 50 terrorist TPLF infiltrators are arrested in the Sakura town and the area. The zone administration says uh, the arrest was made after security forces captured the infiltrators while engaged in terrorist activity. However, the nature of the activity is unspecified. The Ethiopian Broadcasting Corporation also reported that the head of the zone administration has called for people in the Wangumwa zone uh, to continue multifaceted support in the struggle to reverse what he called the TPLF invasion. On August the 24th, uh, just after allegedly stealing fuel from the World Food Program's premises in Mekele, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, started a third invasion into the Afar and Amhar regions of Ethiopia. It took control of Kobo uh, within a few days, but then it was reportedly uh, pushed back. There are reports of continuous fighting in the Kobo area. However, the Ethiopian government has not yet given an official update about the state of the war, military gains, or losses after it announced withdrawal of forces from Kobo due to human waves strategy from the TPLF. It was, however, confirmed that there is war with the TPLF in multiple fronts, including in the Humera Walcott area of the area, the TPLF has been attempting to control along uh, the, the route uh, with uh, Sudan. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And uh, in Sudan, the Quad ambassadors in Khartoum, the capital, failed to gather on yesterday uh, the main parties to the Sudanese political crisis, including the military component. Forces for Freedom and Change and the signatories of the Juba Peace Agreement. The initiative of the diplomats of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, 
the United Kingdom and the United States of America comes two months after the withdrawal of the military component from participation in the transitional government. Also, since last July, the country has witnessed a multiplication of initiatives proposed by political, tribal, and civil society entities supporting the involvement of the Army with a Supreme Military Council. Several FFC officials told Sudan Tribune that the agenda of the meeting includes the implementation of the peace agreement. The FFC visions uh, to end the coup, the structure of the transitional authority, and the military commitment to withdraw from the political process. While the military component did not take part in the meeting, uh, many Manawi uh, told the organizers that as head of the National Consensus Forces, the Anzong Committee, he would not attend uh, without his partners. And finally, uh, the situation uh, inside of the Horn of Africa state of Somalia is becoming more and more critical every week. And of course, uh, time is running out for thousands of people in Somalia. The historic drought is ravaging the country, according uh, to a climate expert. The wider Horn of Africa has had four consecutive failed rainy seasons, a first in over four decades. A fifth rainy season due to start in the coming days will likely fail as well. Uh, Warren Gouliad, our time director of the Intergovernmental Agency on Development, EGOD Climate Prediction and Application Center, the ICPAC, that endangers an estimated 20 million people in one of the world's most impoverished and turbulent regions. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development is a eight-country trade bloc, which includes governments from the Horn of Africa, the Nile Valley, and the African Great Lakes. At least one million people have been displaced by the drought, and widespread deaths are being reported. Hungry families are staggering through parched terrain in search of assistance and many bury their dead a long way. Even when they reach camps outside of the urban areas, they find little or no help. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an electronic international press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, uh, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, Special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash 
Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. I'll never smile again Until I smile at you Uh, 
she delivered uh, two performances, uh, one uh, last evening uh, with uh, Choco Valdez, and uh, that was a duet. And then, of course, uh, tonight, the concluding night of the 2022 Detroit Jazz Festival, she performed uh, with her own uh, band. And we'd like to uh, highlight Diane Reeves, who comes from the city of Detroit, uh, and some of the work she's been doing. Uh, this particular interview was conducted with the Library of Congress, uh, where she talks about uh, the role of Ella Fitzgerald and her own artistic uh, development and also uh, other issues related to her own personal development. Let's listen in to this interview with uh, Diane Reeves uh, with the uh, Library of Congress. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, Sunday, for Monday. Uh, Hi, my September name is Larry 5th. Applebaum from the Music Division here at the Library Let's of Congress. Let's go uh, to the interview it is with, with great uh, pleasure Reed. that I'm joined by one of the great singers of our time, Grammy Award-winning vocal artist Diane Reed. Diane, great Hi, to see you again. glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you're here in Washington and here at the library to give a performance tonight mm-hmm. that's sort of focused on Ella Fitzgerald because it's her centenary year. Right. Let's start. Um, why don't you talk to us about how you pay tribute to Ella and still stay true to yourself? <laughs> well, that's the only thing that you can do because Ella did it in a certain way that is uniquely her. Hmm. And the greatest lesson that I learned from her was to be yourself. So um, the thing that I love about her, and people always say it, is the the whole joy of singing. And um, I think um, tonight's performance will celebrate her joy, her courage, um, her ability to just jump off of the edge and create in the moment and um, be a co-creator with her her musicians. Are you going to delve into her repertoire? Yes, a lot. And is there an aspect of her career that you're particularly drawn to because she had different stages? Yeah, I think, you know, when I was in high school is when I really had the opportunity to listen to her, and that was in the 70s. I was working uh, at this club that she came and performed at. And, you know, all my life I had heard Ella, of course, and played, you know, everybody was playing their favorite songs and favorite eras of, of Ella. Um, But the thing that I loved was when I saw her, she was swinging the Beatles tunes. Yeah. And I thought that was the most incredible thing because now that meant that it's open. You know, that said to me, uh, you know, the music that you love is the music that you can bring a jazz sensibility to. And that's exactly what she did. And so for me... Um, that Ella, um, that thing about Ella was the the greatest discovery and the thing that uh, ignited me. Now, you actually subbed for her. Yeah. This, for at uh, least a few days at the just, warehouse. The one day. It was the just one day. one day. Okay. Tell, and, tell, tell that story. Yeah. Well, this is that same performance. The warehouse was a club in Denver that upstairs was the big club, the warehouse, and then downstairs was the tool shed. And I ended up getting this um, gig because Gene Harris 
uh, was had come through Denver mm-hmm. uh, along with Blue Mitchell. They were all, you know, hanging out in Denver. And he found a home at this club, and he would have a jam session on Sundays. So I would go to the jam session and end up getting a gig there. I'm in high school. My parents are chaperoning. I'm seeing all the big acts upstairs, and then they tell me Ella is coming. So they made arrangements so that I could go up and see her. So I'm watching her show, and once again, she was swinging the Beatles, you know. And it was just unbelievable and went backstage and hung out in her dressing room, and people were coming back, and she was very gracious. And every time I would get up to leave, she'd tell me to just sit there, you know. And um, finally when everybody left and, I, you know, she asked me how did I like the show. And I told her that it was absolutely wonderful, but I was so starstruck and, and in awe because while she was being nice to all of these people, I'm looking at all of this wardrobe and gowns and shoes laid out and going, my God, you know, it was just a lot, all these colors and, and her the tone of her speaking voice. And so uh, the next night uh, she was to come, but as you know, dinner is got a, we have thin air, and the air took its toll on her, and she wasn't able to um, perform. So they put a group of musicians, my uncle is bassist, and he was one of them, and they said, we want you to go upstairs and sing, you know, a few songs with the band. And I remember they hadn't cleared out her dressing room, and I was sitting in her dressing room, and um, she had these um, cute little periwinkle blue pumps just sitting there. They were patent leather, and um, I just stuck my feet in them. They were narrow, but I got my feet in them. And I remember going and I performed three songs. I vaguely remember that because the entire time I was looking down at the shoes. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a sense from watching her? I mean, we all know what a great artist she was mm-hmm. as a singer, as an improviser. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of her personality, what kind of person she was, um, like off the bandstand? No, no. I, I, I mean, only the little bit that I was able to peep, and I found her um, speaking voice to be, as I remember, was very small, and um, you know, like I said, it was just kind of on breath, and you know, just gracious and thank you, and you like that. And, um, you know, when I look back, I think, you know, knowing what I know about singing now, I know that the stage is a sacred place. And it is a place that when you walk onto it, there's an immediate change. And there is no inhibition. There is no editing. There is no uh, fear. but right before you go on, you feel all of those things. You feel, at least I do. And I had heard that, you know, she was, you know, very, very, you know, nervous a lot of times before going on stage. And I thought, I understand that, you know. So the the the, the ability becomes a kind of armor and a shield. And um, people see you in a certain way. And that's how they think of you, that they don't really know you. And I know that's true. Mm. So much of what you do 
on stage is requires being in the moment. Yes. yes. Can you prepare to be in the moment? Um, the preparing comes from the doing, you know, that this is a landscape that you understand and you know how to navigate and that you, you know, are familiar with in your in every fiber of your being. You know how to hear, you know what what harm, certain harmonies sound like and how they move and where you want to go in that. And so those things become second nature. And then the next thing is, what does the moment say that I should do right now? You know, it's like this conversation. You could ask me the same question tomorrow, and I will probably describe the same thing in a different way. Hmm. Um we talked about Ella, but I, I want to focus a bit on you. Mm -hmm. You're born in Detroit. When did your family move to Denver? Uh, when I was two. two. I was very young. So yeah. no memories of Detroit, really? No, other than that's where I spent all my summers, you know. But basically, I did not attend school there. I didn't really grow up there. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Music around the house? Oh, my God, yes. I mean... Was there a piano in the, in the home? Piano in the house. I had uh, my grandmother's sister two sisters and an uncle. They were all performers. And um, the, the the oldest brother and sister I never met, but always heard stories about them. But my one Aunt Kay, um, that was, you know, when we'd have holiday dinners at her house, she played and she would sing all of those, you know, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, you know, blues with a dual meaning and and the adults would be laughing, mm -hmm. and you know we didn't know why they were laughing, but I would learn the songs because it sounded like yeah, songs. all double entendre. And um, and I remember my uncle would play bass, and so that was one side of it. Then my uncle was with the symphony, so we would go and hear him. This is Charles Burrell. Charles Burrell. Yeah, we need to And then my um, my mother had her music. My father loved jazz music, so he. You know, there were records everywhere, and I think the first cuts were that I could really say out loud without a problem was Bitches Brew. Mm -hmm. And then, um, then of course, George Duke, and uh, my sister's 10 years older than me, so I'm listening to the music that she listened to. Everybody loved music. George Duke is your cousin. Yeah, George Duke is my cousin. Yeah. was my cousin. Um, do you remember the first record you bought with your own money? Hmm. No, because <laughs> they were always just. I mean, there. what kind of music were you listening to when you were like okay. preteens? Preteen, you know what? I actually do. The first record that I bought with my own money was uh, uh, Marvin Gaye's uh, "What's Going On." Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because that was different. But um, as a kid, you know, here we are. We're listening now. Black radio has come into view on in in Denver. And I remember there was a station called KDKO with Dr. Daddio, and that's when we started hearing the music of Motown, mm. you know. And my next-door neighbor was also from Detroit. She spent a lot of time, like I would sometimes go together to Detroit in the summertime and um, learn all the dances. Learn, And then we'd have, we had 45s, like, um, I, I think my mother, I'd say, you know, I want this 45, and she would go, and then she had her, and my friend Regina had her brother who would bring the 45s, and so we would just listen to them. Did you ever sing into your hairbrush? 
we didn't know. We didn't sing into our hairbrush. We actually, you know, would watch, and this is a really interesting thing. We would watch on television, you know, like The Temptations or, you know, when they did this show, TCB with the Supremes. And, I mean, we could take all of that in and actually turn back around and basically do just what they did, the moves and everybody. Oh, yeah, that's slick stuff. Yeah, and so, you know, we would have our own little dances and stuff. But we sang out loud, didn't have a hairbrush, you know, but, you know, just, you know, had a broom and, you know, did all the different things, could turn around and grab the broom and all that kind of stuff. Were you also listening to, like, Stax records, or was it strictly Motown? No, it was it was really everything. You know, James Brown was very much a part of my life. Stax was a part of my life because of my sister, huh. you know. So it was everything, yeah. And it was an interesting time because in the 60s and 70s, you know, the music was very message, early 70s, very message-oriented. So it really could easily be the background music or the soundtrack of your life, you know, um, because there were all of these musicians that were talking about, you know, how we have to come together and get along, and you're, you're, he's not heavy, he's my brother, and all of these things. And I remember going to the record store with my dad, and, you know, the music was in alphabetical order, so... That was really cool, you know, when I think back, you know, there were no boundaries and, you know, wasn't categorized. I'd never heard the word genre at that time. Um, my world music experience before that that word was even coined came from jazz musicians, mm. you know, listening to Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, the music of Cuba or listening to Wayne Shorter and, and hearing this amazing sound from Brazil you know, with Milton Nascimento and, you know, all of this introducing us to this world of music and, you know, my sister going to concerts and saying, you know, who was there and it would just be all, you know, you could be Miles and Ravi Shankar and it was just music to people. So it was really big and broad at that time. So what happened when you first encountered Betty Carter? Oh, my God. <laughs> I had my own group by this time. I had moved to Los Angeles, and we were performing and, you know, trying to, you know, our, our group was a group that, you know, you, you wrote, arranged, and we improvised, and we would try to go so far we didn't care about coming back, you know, just see where we could take the music. What was the name of that group? Um, it was called uh, Night Flight. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember... Uh, we would always go and hear different people that were coming in town. And at the time, I was living way out in Glendale. My drummer called me and said, Diane, you know, you got to get down here and hear this lady. You know, her name is Betty Carter. you got to come here. We just heard the first set. Come so you can be here for the next set. So I, you know, then you could, you just did that, you know, jumped up, made the 45-minute trek, got there in enough time to hear her and... I was mesmerized. I was, you know, I I, 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 lo I almost lost my mind. I'd never, ever heard anyone stand in a band like that and really co-create in a way that 
the movement of the music the musicians would play and she would pull so far back on the time and you would think oh my god something's going on but you knew it wasn't wrong it was all right and she's telling these stories with broad strokes and you know and there was something about her that you know, and I think this happens with every young artist, that you see a glimpse of something that you actually recognize, you know. And it's it's like a fleeting light, but it's enough to not only change your heart and your mind, but, you know, really make you feel things physically. Hmm. And And I remember that when I drove home, I was basically in a trance because it was like, it was like a, a God experience for me. So at the time, I had two roommates. One was a hairdresser, one was a, a flight attendant. And they were both gone for the weekend now. Every night now, from now on, that was the first night. She was doing six nights, so I'm going every single night to to hear her. What club was it? Uh, this Hop Sings out, in, out in, on Lincoln. and um, And so... I go and I look up her records at uh, um, Tower Records and, you know, their records on Betcar and, you know, I'm like going, wow, that's her own label. And buy a whole new turntable and set it up (laughs) with speakers underneath it. And this whole weekend, you know, this whole time my roommates were gone, when I wasn't at the club, I'm listening to her with flowers on either side of the turntable. I mean, it was like an altar. And they came home and they said, what is wrong? I'm like, you don't understand. So I remember, um, you know, the whole band, we were all there every single night. And it was, I believe it was Curtis Lundy was on. I, I'm almost, I think that Mulgrew, I'm thinking Yeah, that was, was a trio. That yeah, was one of our on, great trios. Yeah, uh, uh, was on piano. But anyway... I remember I thought, okay, I want to try this thing with these, you know, with this long, these long strokes and pull back on the time. And I said, so I'm going to count off this slow tempo for the man I love, and you guys just play it, you know, I'm going to try it. One, two, three, four. By the end of the song, I couldn't find the man I love, he couldn't find me, you know. But what an experience. It's harder than it looks. Well, you know, but the thing was, I had a place where I could try, you know. And so I just kept trying until I found this place that I like for me, Hmm. that worked for me. And I've been pulling back on time ever since. And, you know, the next person I heard do that in a totally different way was uh, Shirley Horn. Yeah, her her very creative use of space. Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. here in Washington. Now, when you have these kind of experiences that open the doors Mm -hmm. for you in your mind, do you talk to the artist? Did you talk to Betty? Do you talk to Shirley? Yeah. uh, As a matter of fact, Betty, from that point on, anytime she came to um, L.A., I was there. But I hadn't talked to her yet, and um, she... um, know I was there and her assistant told me one time she said Betty would say that girl is out there <laughs> yeah stalking <laughs> yeah I, you know just listening because yeah. it was just 
you know, because from there she went to the Senecril, and she also did, there was another little place, Vine Street, where I saw her. And, um, you know, it was really an amazing thing. To, it was like school, you know. I call these living schools, you know, because really got to really sit up under, listen, and, you know, break things down or, you know, go, oh, wow, that I never would have thought to make a choice like that or, you know, playing with time and making time your own and, and being able to take a lyric and paint a, a, a picture with the lyric and, you know, all of these things. And so, um, <clears throat> you know, I went to the University of Colorado, but I never had schooling like when I would go and sit in front of, you know, people like her. I'd go and see uh, Carmen McRae would be at the Parisian Room, you know, and they're right there, Big Joe Turner. I had just broken up with my boyfriend. Big Joe Turner was sitting on stage, and, you know, the whole, I was, my friend took me, in, and I weeped the whole time, and the whole time he looked at me and sang, and it just, you know, was just this amazing thing. So, you know, those for me, and then, you know, being able to work with a lot of um, of the architects of the music, for me, the living school was the best because you realize that there was this intimate exchange that goes on between musicians, sometimes jokes, but always conversation, always, you know, taking the conversation to different levels and, and making statements within the music that... The audience hears but, you know, doesn't really, really know where it came from because the statement really came from what just happened uh, backstage when everybody was laughing and talking. You can learn a lot from reading books. Yes. You can learn a lot from studying scores. Mm -hmm. But it's still, so much of this music is still an oral tradition. It's yes. passed on mm -hmm. from master to student or right. apprentice or whatever. Mm -hmm. So when you finally gathered the courage to talk to Betty mm -hmm. or to Shirley or to mm -hmm. any of the other greats right. who inspired you, what would you ask them? Well, I'd just go there and sit and talk. You know, I mean, I wouldn't really talk about the music, just listen to, because Betty was the one that took over conversations, you know. So, yeah. you know, it was like, cool with me. It's like, oh, okay. Was she curious about you? Um, n later on, I did this record called uh, Art and Survival, and uh, Javon Jackson, right after that, um, was doing a record, and he had asked Betty to produce his record, and he asked me to be on it, and I love Javon, he's from Denver, and I was like, absolutely, and absolutely, because Betty was producing it, and uh, I think one of the songs was I Waited for You, whatever, so I made sure... I mean, I knew everything. I sang it down, you know. And I remember after the first take, because I just wanted it to be right, and, you know, I, you know, really thought it out and really rehearsed, I mean, really rehearsed in a way that, you know, it was part of my show so that it felt like I could do anything with it. And um, then it was just silence. And I was like, oh, God, you know. She said, when you do the second verse, um, just be a little more inventive. Just do something else. I was like, oh, okay, and I did that. And um, our conversation was really, really short. I did the songs. Cool, cool. So a um, couple of weeks later, I was talking to Bruce Lonval, and I was like, I have this idea for this record, 
and um, I, I wanted because I like the idea of, of a woman producing jazz music, the whole different way of looking at things. And at the time, you know, I was thinking, you know, her and you know, early on Terry Lynn Carrington because she produced one of the songs on the. Um, uh, art and survival record and myself you know and I thought maybe not the whole thing but some things but Bruce went and told her um, Diane wants you to produce her record <laughs> I was like Bruce I didn't say that you know so anyway we ended up talking and um, and I said well you know I, I told her my idea and um, she said well if I don't produce the whole thing I don't produce I said I'm really sorry to hear that you know and so we got into this really, like, deep conversation. And, you know, Betty was hard, you know. And she said, you know, and then I heard your, so I knew she was listening to my music because she was calling off tunes. And I heard, you know, you sing, um, uh, uh, what was it, Body and Soul. And, you know, I never put anger in my music. And it felt angry. And, and you know, you, 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 know, you can't bring that to audience. I said, well, that's how I... I feel, you know, about the song, I was, it was more, it was not so much anger as it was, I was stating the fact that this is where I was, and I was shouting it, you know, and um, I got the courage to do that from listening to you, Mm. totally flipped the conversation, Mm. so she said to me, look, I have a run to make, and I'll be right back, and I'm going to call you again, and I said, okay, and she called me back. And then we started to talk, and it was it was incredible. And um, after she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I remember she was at the North Sea Jazz Festival, and I went to go see her there, and we hugged, and I told her that I really, you know, respected and loved her, and thank you, you know, for the performance that evening and she gave me this really wonderful hug and told me to just be strong out there and she said stick to who you are i'm not sure there was anybody stronger than betty carter i don't think so well especially when you think of when she came up yeah but maybe you know, melba liston uh, maybe but uh, sarah was you know they yeah. all had you know they all they all went through some and and um carmen mccray they all you know they're all from the same cup from the same cloth i think just a different way of dealing with it, pushing through, because, and I realized that, I'll never forget, I had this gig out at UCL, USC once, and it was with my band, all my music, and Billy Childs was in the band at that time, and, you know, we were performing, and this big um, radio disc jockey was there because it was a live performance on air, and, um, you know, he decided he would interview uh, Billy, you know, which was cool. And so, you know, he's like, I'm listening to the music. He's talking about the music and yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, um, so who's the chick singer? And um, um, Billy said, oh, that's Diane Reeves, you know. And, you know, we've been working together and da 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 And the, the disc jockey says, well, you know, who's the leader of the band? And Billy looks at him and says, the chick singer. So, you know, this kind of, you know, thing, um, you know, the, 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 what I got um, from having to push through was nothing, I realized was nothing like, 
You know how Sarah and Carmen and Ella and all of Billy and all of them pushed through in a way that um, allowed, you know, for them it was black and white, and I got to be in a gray area if I needed to be. They created that for me. But it was still, you know, um, you know, very, you know, a, a male-dominated uh, art form. However, there were really, really good people like Clark Terry and Louis Belson and, you know, of course, um, Thad Jones and, and you know, um, Mel Lewis who, you know, that was the first time I even heard Dee Dee Bridgewater was with them. So that they were open and, you know, broad and, um, you know, hearing music for what it was. So, you know, I had this opportunity to come through all of that. You've led your own groups for many years, mm-hmm. but you've also worked for other leaders. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes a good leader? Um, just being very, very clear about what it is that you want and also being respectful of who you're bringing to the table, you know, because everybody has a way, has something to contribute, you know, and they want to make your thing happen, but they do it in their own voice. And I like when people are like that. I learned that um, Ellington was like that. Hmm. How did you learn to improvise? Um, did it just come naturally? No. Yeah. Oh. Yes and no. I mean, um, the desire, of course, was natural, but then I had to go, you know, I had to learn how to, um, you know, sing through chord changes and what to hear and how to hear. And Did you, you do know, that just by listening to great listening, singers? or Yeah, mostly listening. Listening not to mostly instrumentalists, you huh. know, because there was more instrumentalists who were improvising than there were singers. I mean, other than Nella, you know, who was an instrumentalist. And and which specific instrumentalist would have inspired you? Well, for different reasons, different different ones. Like, for instance, I loved um, Miles because I equated Miles with, after I had discovered um, Milton Ashmento, with this same kind of thing with tone, you know, being able to sing these really beautiful um, notes that are on the edge without vibrato, you know, just straight and and they ha- there's a kind of in there's a kind of innocence to the sound, or you know it just it cuts through, but it's it um it you want it to penetrate you. And then you know I'd listen to someone like uh, um, Cannonball Adderley, who I could hear the stories in what he played. Hmm. You know, um, so, you know, you're listening to Country Preacher, which I recorded, and you could hear this whole story, you know, um, of what, you know, what was going on. And um, I love the sound of his horn, and I love, you know, what he did with um, Nancy Wilson, you know, how well and how beautifully that went together. So it would be like that. Those were, were the first two. And then um, later on, when I discovered the Sarah Vaughan and Clifford Brown album, then I was like, oh, okay, this is something, you know, something else that is. So I started to realize that I had to define, through musicians, I started to realize that improvisation was one thing, but defining and refining your own sound and tone was quite another. And so I went about doing that because I noticed 
that with uh, Sarah, she really understood her entire instrument. Ella created a language to improvise with, you know, that was strictly for her. And I always tell people that was a language to be able to articulate and say what it, or reach the things that she needed to say. Everybody's different. And, you know, depending on where you come from, you have to, you, you, you know, somebody who is learning to do that and they're from, you know, what, Brazil or something, they're going to use, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of sounds. So, um, so you have to find your own place. And then I found that that improvisation was steeped in phrasing, hmm. who, you know, while um, Betty was a great improviser in terms of, you know, with melody without lyric, but she also phrased in a way that was, you know, very, very powerful. Same thing with uh, Billie Holiday. So how do you want to, these things begin to help me understand, well, how, what do you want to say, how do you want to say it, and how will you go about saying it? And, you know, so tearing down the songs and, you know, looking at the lyrics, say, oh, I want to say it like this because uh, this song reminds me of, whatever in my life and that would be the subtext and you know and and then from that point on you know just hearing how the harmonies fall and knowing where you want to start and where you want to get to and and you you get you you think farther than where you are so you know where you want to get to at all times hmm. interesting to hear you talk about sound and I'm always curious how much of either an instrumentalist or a vocalist sound is conscious and how much of it is, for example, when we are just using our speaking voice, mm -hmm. if you're an actor or actress, yes, you've trained your voice to sound in a certain way. Right. But most people just speak because they learn from their parents or they learn somehow. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily conscious. Right. So as a singer, how much of your sound is conscious something that you've trained yourself to do? Well, for instance, speaking, because my instrument is, um, you know, something I have to use every day on the phone, you know, I, you know, consciously do not holler into other rooms. I consciously stay supported to the point where it's, keep my voice lifted to the point where it's just second nature because I know I have to. Um, when I um, have to project, you know, like if I have to, like, say something loud so somebody hears, or even in anger, I'm really conscious, you know, about all of that because I still know that I have to work. And also, I know the limitations of my instrument. I know that my instrument needs sleep. I know my instrument needs water. I know that my instrument sometimes needs silence. It needs a smoke-free environment, you know. But I know singers that can do all of that, and they don't have a problem, but that's their instrument, you know. So, and then after that, you know, when I li look at different songs that I sing, because I sing all kinds of music, um, different music has a different kind of, you know, like atmosphere or soundscape or, you know, landscape. Give me an example. Like, um... If I sing, um, say, Love for Sale, and I do it in this Brazilian kind of way, there's a certain way that I would use my voice. But if I were to, like, take 
love to sell and say, you know, I'm going to bring it down. And it's really up-tempo and fast-paced and, you know, it's a lot of fun. But what if I want to do it in a, a different kind of way? I might change the key, you know, to bring it if I want to do it as a ballad. Uh, I decide what it is that I want to say, you know, with it. I might change harmonies that give my voice a whole nother kind of feeling, you know, um, you know, all of these kinds of things, you know, to set up the sound um, to give the lyric life. Of course, it helps that you've been working with certain musicians for a mm -hmm. long time in yes. your band, mm -hmm. whether it's um, Peter or Romero or, mm -hmm. I mean, because they're right there with you. Yeah. So you can change mm -hmm. in the moment. Yeah. And that's the thing that I love because they come from a period of time where they're real open to that. So, you know, that conversation thing can happen. You know, like I'm <clears throat> doing something with Amaro, which, you know, I'm excited to, tonight to perform with just the two of them because things change, you know. And Homero, you know, like if I do something with just him, you know, I just never know where he's going to go, and I love it. It's the same thing with my bass player. You know, I turn around with him sometimes and say, okay, we're going to do all blues. That's like, you know you pick the group because we're not going to do the traditional group. Huh. And every night, you know, but he, he comes out of this tradition in New Orleans. That's Reginald. Yes, Reginald Veal. He comes out of this tradition from New Orleans that is that, you know, that, you know, in the moment creates and is comfortable with the creation that they make. So this goes on all the time, you know. I've written, I wrote this song called Tango just so that, you know, we you know we just have this opportunity that every night this song just changes. I tell the audience that you know it'll never be this tomorrow night or any other night. So um, when you're thinking about a recording project, mm -hmm. yeah, you conceive or you're drawn to certain songs. By the way, what what does draw you to certain songs? It's mostly the lyric. Oh. Yeah, it's mostly. The and lyric. is that the, a matter of the story? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and something, even if I've never experienced it, there's something about it that, um, you know, speaks to me. Mm. So that, you know, or something I want to talk about or that I've seen that I'm inspired by, you know. So let's say you develop a list, a set list or, or a program list mm -hmm. of, say, ten songs. Do you then go out on the road before you record? And just to see how the songs sort of take shape? Yep. Or, yeah, absolutely. And how does it change from your original conception to what you end up recording? It just does. Like, um, I, I, you know, that's a really, it's a kind of, um, it's a funny thing. Um, say, I'll take, for instance, I was doing, you know, there's this um, Andy DeFranco song that I do on my record that never was that. The way that we recorded was not how it started out. Mm. And Andy DeFranco um, is, um, is called 32 Flavors. And Andy DeFranco writes poetry, so you can interpret it. And, and she, wrote, she wrote this song that there's, um, there's not much of a melody, so um, it's really, it gives itself, lends itself beautifully to improvising. So I learned the lyric, learned, you know, her melody, and 
then I would go out on the road, say, like, when I was doing two guitars with uh, Russell Malone and Homero, and and I'd say, okay, we're going to come up with this groove. And they'd start this groove. And then I'd start putting these lyrics in a certain rhythm on top of it, and they would respond. So, okay, now we got this thing that has this kind of Middle Eastern kind of drone to it, and it's working. Okay, we did that. Then, you know, another night <laughs> just could change into something else, and then it turned into a blues, and then it, you know, it just, I just let it, I, I, um, going back to what I said earlier about, you know what certain people bring to the table. In in my band, I know how all of them are, so I can look at my drummer and say, okay, do this, and he will play certain things that I know, you know, that this is going to work out over, so it just keeps, I keep trying things. And that's with a lot of songs, hmm. you know. Keep trying things until we settle and find a place for it. Are you self-critical as an artist? After I've done it, after I go and listen uh, to the end product, then I'm like, oh. I mean, when you're listening to takes, what goes through your mind? Um, you know, I have to really, uh, the biggest thing is, I have to really not, one thing that George taught me is like, you know, when we first started working together, George Duke, um, on my first uh, Blue Note album, he realized that I was very, very critical, and he's like, no. He said, you can't, you, there comes a point where you just have to just walk away because you're going to um, be so critical that the, the initial spirit, the initial idea that you just sang without thinking, um, which is the real thing, will be gone. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay. So, uh, you know, I would um, go in and I would listen to a take and say, okay, okay, and then walk away from it, you know, and come back and hear it. In, and the next day it would hear, I'd hear it in a totally different way, you know, and it's like, yeah, keep that, you know. So I started to really enjoy my choices, but, um, you know, Sometimes it's really, really hard. And then at the very end, I'm like, oh, you know. I, I have a hard time listening to myself. As a producer, was George a first take kind of guy? First three takes. First three. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. after that, you might get perfection, but it's, you and, lose. And, and because he knew who I was. He, know, he knew that she's a live performer. You know, mm. he understood that. And, you know, someone who is a studio performer, it's a totally different thing, you know. But he understood that we have to get this when she comes in here and she's, like, ready and can't wait to get it down, bam. And generally it would be the first or second take of a song. As a live performer, do you enjoy having people in the studio with you? Yeah. Like friends? And yeah, I yeah. really, really do. I need it. Um, just And not, not for applause, just for energy, you know. I like having that. Um, the first uh, live record that I did, we did it at uh, at uh, SIR Studios in Los Angeles. It was really incredible. We did it for two nights, just invited people to come in. And um, that was just a, uh, a larger, <laughs> you know, um, uh, experience of what I experience when I'm doing my records. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's take a step back, detach a little bit. Uh -huh. I want you to think about all the songs that you've recorded, all your recordings, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And you think about the trajectory of your career. Mm -hmm. What is the story of your career in those songs? I think the biggest story is that um, I've never had to compromise and that in the very beginning I kind of decided that that's what success was for me. Mm. Um, because I was asked, told that you need, you need to dis, under, you need to define what success means to you. And um, and so for me, you know, music is interesting. Music saved my life. And what makes you say that? Um, it literally saved my life. Uh, coming up um, in um, junior high school. I was a very depressed kid, very, very depressed. In Denver. In Denver. And um, just for a lot of reasons that I won't go into, but extremely. And um, Were you a loner? Um, you know, I've never been, not so much a loner, but I've never been, you know, one to have, like, lots of people, only people that I really knew, and it was a small group of people that to this day were still friends. Okay. Um, and, you know, I was tall for my age, you know. I always got criticized by about that. And my mother would say, you know, oh, no, you're statuesque. And I love that word. And um, just saw things and felt things in a different kind of way that was different than my peers. And, um, and uh, I had a situation where... Um, in when I was 12 years old, I was found under the steps. I never really talk about this. I was found under the steps because I tried to commit suicide. And um, and I remember I was out for three days. The only time that I looked up was once to see my mother looking down at me. And then um, through the whole process of, you know, they put you with therapists and stuff, and I wouldn't, um, I just would, could not talk to them. And and I guess they said, we have to find another way. But at the same time, I had this really great teacher, Benny Williams, who was the quiet choral teacher at our school. And um, the other thing is, like, we were the first kids to be bused to this school, mm. Hamilton Junior High. And... Um, so this is like early 70s? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, she, to bring the students together, because she was the music teacher, she said, I'm going to bring all this contemporary music that is happening together, and, you know, these kids are going to, you know, sing each other's songs, mm -hmm. you know. So we're singing Bob Dylan songs. The black kids are singing Bob Dylan songs. The white kids are singing, you know, Ball of Confusion. You know, it was just like she just mixed us up and, you know, gave us poetry. And we wrote our own show. And it was very empowering. And um, I had um, two songs that I was singing, one with the group, another song that came out on the Edwin Hawkins album that was Oh Happy Day. There was a song called Joy. And... Um, that was that song was my first song that I sang that I felt something pull my heart and I when I closed my eyes I started to sing it and something that c 
connected with people. And it was really, really powerful. And it was it saved my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking down the hall and because my grandmother would always say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. But this felt so right. I remember saying out loud, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket, you know, walking past the science room. I, I can see it as, you know, as vividly as when it happened. And um, So that basket is the world of music that and creativity? That basket was creativity, the way yeah. that I saw it, the w what it would do for me, how it would help me. And it's really, really served in a lot of ways to change a lot of things in my life. You know, people looked at me in a different kind of way. And then it became a place to hide behind. And I started to realize that there was Diane Reese, the artist, Diane Reese, the person. And they really needed to come together, and that's when I did the Art and Survival album. And that album was when everything changed. And, um, you know, it was like, it was very cathartic for me. And it was a record that wasn't very well received, but those who hear it get it. Um, it was controversial, you know. Uh, it, there were a lot of things, and it was at a at a crossroads in my life when I was not with Blue Note and I was with, you know, uh, on the other side of the label trying to get back to Blue Note and Bruce. It's like a whole bunch of, there's a whole big story there. But basically it was the thing that pushed me through and and it pushed me through because it was what I wanted to do no matter what happened. You know, I, I would suffer whatever the consequences. And I came up on the other side still there and still able and still um, being able to do to sing the music I wanted to sing. Have your feelings about music and creativity changed over the years since then? I think mm, there are certain things. Um, I think... Um, for example, do you ever get jaded by the business of music? Well, you know, yes, but I kind of, while I was in it, I never really was like of it, I guess. I don't know how to de describe that. I um, always marched to my own, you know, drum mm. and um, figured, you know, people, I didn't sell a lot of records, but people would come to my concerts. And nobody could really touch that, you know. Um, I know people sign deals now where all of that's included, but that's mine. I built that, you know. And um, so that part was the thing that allowed me to say, well, you know, you know, I've seen people feel like they've been thrown, that they were, they were thrown away by record companies because they weren't selling enough records. And, you know, and I thought to myself, I never sell enough records but I'm still here, and I'm still doing what I love to do, and it still takes care of my life. Now, the other side of it is that, you know, I've, I I still love to do what I do, but I know that it's taken away. You know, I'm not married. I have no children, you know. Um, I think about that sometimes, but I also know about me that if that's what I chose to do, I would have done it. There is a world outside of music. 
Oh, yeah. Maybe not outside of creativity, because mm-hmm. that, that's in everything. Mm-hmm. What do you like to do outside of music? Well, you know, I'm a, I really love um, improvising with food. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, I love to cook. You're a foodie. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we travel. People are always introducing us to new things, and if there are flavors that I haven't had, you know, I try to, I'll say, you know, what is that? And, why you know why you know why does it taste this way or whatever? What's, you what's your latest obsession? Well, um, lately actually, I've just been home and um, just eating very 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 clean. I like this whole idea of making you know breads out of uh, cauliflower and hmm. you know you know figuring out all of those kinds of things. But we've been traveling a great deal, so I haven't been in. I will be in the kitchen this summer because I'm off. Um, but um, basically it's like these really clean kind of dishes that, you know, there's a place at home called the True Food Kitchen. I think they have them different places. And um, uh, it's uh, it's a pretty cool place. And the, the way they make the food taste is good, but I'm like, I can make it better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can know? burn. I know you, know, you can. And I, but I like the idea of having this food that is, you know, really, really clean and done in a certain way that, you know, that you eat it and you actually feel energized and, and good about it. So I know you travel all over the world. Yeah. Is there a part of the world you haven't been to yet? I've never been to India. Mm. Um, Do you I, like Indian food? Yes. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going tomorrow night. I want, a friend of mine was telling me about a restaurant, so we'll go. But um, I love Indian food. Um, I've never been, I've been to lots of places, few places in Africa, but I've never been to Ghana. We are going to Kenya next year. And um, uh, I've never been to Egypt, uh, you know, so there are a lot of, and I've never really explored a lot of South America, you know. So, you know, there's there are a lot of places. And the odd thing about that is there's a lot of influence on my music from oh, very you know, much that, so. you know. So, you know, I've never, and that's just from the music, musicians that, you know, brought the flavor to me. Um, you and I are basically same generation. Mm-hmm. And I think when we were coming up and forming some of our musical tastes, there was a term, uh, a marketing term called world music. Yeah. And so is that still a thing? No, I think now it's global. Yeah. 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 Now it's just global. Everybody works with everybody and goes, you know, it's just, you know, the Internet has allowed us to make the world smaller and, and more accessible. Do you stream yourself? Do you look at YouTube? Do yeah, you, all of that. Uh, is there, um, what do you think of, like, the newer generation of neo-soul singers? Well, I don't know. I don't Because you could do that if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, I don't think they even call themselves Neil. Oh, what a, uh, you know, what's but it they, about? you know, but but it's like all of these indie, um, you know, musicians, and you know, there's this whole, and they all, a lot of them come out of the hip hop generation, and that's a whole nother way of listening to things that, you know, I, I'm still on the outside looking in. I still, I love it. I don't know how they get to it. Some mm. of it, mm. you know, but I really, really love that it's new and it's fresh and it's musical and it's rhythmic and it, it expresses poetry, 
you know, in a, in a totally different kind of way. I would imagine that when you were coming up and started to make your records, people felt the same way about you. Probably. So yeah. there's a continuum. Oh, yeah. yeah? Absolutely. Each generation discovers. I'm like, oh, God, I'm out, <laughs> you know. But it's cool, you know, because I appreciate it. And, and I, you know, I was surrounded by people and musicians that appreciated that, you know. Always still, you know, you look at people like Herbie and Wayne and always still pushing to be, you know, be to understand and be in the relevant flow. Is recognition important to you? Um, it's cool. You know, I, I like that I'm, you know, in, in the terms of being able to go out and perform and, um, uh, you know, that people understand my work and love it. Yeah, it's, it's very important. Do you work as much as you want? Yes, and, I, and I'm off as much as I want, so that's good. That's a nice balance, yeah. huh? And that's what it is right now. It's all about balance. Hmm. Um, what's, oh, I, I should probably ask you, your last recording won a Grammy. Right. Yeah? Right. So what's the next one? How do you follow up on a Grammy? <laughs> a Grammy is something that happens then, and you're thankful for it, and you move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and not everything gets a Grammy or a nomination, but that's not why you do it. <clears throat> I have a, a project that I just did. Uh, in Marciac, France, it's a live record, which I'm really excited about that I produced. And um, I love it because it is really just one performance. It's no mixing of other performances. Mm. We went in, we hit it, and it, uh, um, we have a special guest, Gregoire Moraes, on the recording with my band, Peter Martin, Reginald Veal, Homero Lubombo, and Terry Gali on drums. And, um, you know, we add some new things and uh, some things from, a couple of things from uh, Beautiful Life, but it's, it's a whole other kind of feeling, and it's very joyous, and I'm excited about it. So speaking of balance, how do you, how do you balance being the artist mm -hmm. and also being the producer, where you have to be sort of be detached and make decisions? Well, you know, I had to do a lot of thinking about how I wanted it to be presented and presented in a way that um, that my musicians didn't feel like they were really being recorded and that I didn't feel like that I had to tell myself, you know, this is a live recording and you know that this is the only one we're going to do. So, you know, but I just had to spend time and say, you know, I'm not going to oversing. I'm just going to do my thing. And the way that I did that was did several group uh, gigs uh, ahead of time, you know, on the way to doing this last gig. And um, basically it's just all the work, the prep work before, and um, uh, and it, it came out just the way I wanted it to, or actually better. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. Is there a dream project you have in mind that you haven't done yet? You know, I found that, you know, a lot of my dreams have come true. Some haven't, but I found that um, the things that I could never even think of, that I never even thought about um, that have come into my life have been extraordinary. So I'm just open. How about know? somebody you haven't worked with yet that you've always wanted to? Huh. Some of those people have passed on. Yeah. 
you know, so that's not going to happen. But, um, no, I, I just am just open, you know. Yeah. I, You know, when we did the Sing the Truth Project uh, with Angelique Joe and Liz Wright, you know, it, it was something that came up about, oh, that's a good idea. Now we fill in the blanks and make it, and we celebrated Nina Simone. And it was an extraordinary uh, experience with Nina Simone's daughter, Simone. And it was really, really great. And it, it wasn't anything I thought of doing, but I'm glad that we did. I would bet that there are musicians out there whose dream is to do something with you. I'm open. Yeah? Yeah, and they call me, you know. Uh, I just did this thing with Michael Olatuja. Uh He has this new project, uh, Lagos Pepper Soup, coming out. And it was really kind of cool because... He had me singing, and he called me up. He says, um, do you think you would sing, learn the lyrics in Yoruba? I was oh, like, interesting. I was like, really? And and so right when I'm, I know that I'm going to say no, I grit my teeth and say yes. You because know, just pushing on. Yes. Just yeah, because it's going to be interesting. I have the time. I can. He says, I, I said, look, I need you to do this, 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 and this. He said, okay. And it was extraordinary. I had so much did you, fun. Did you listen to him teach you the lyric, yeah, or did he write it out phonetically? He wrote it for me phonetically. No, he wrote it out just like I wrote it phonetically. I had him speak the words hmm. and, and send it to me. And then I just, you know, went line by line. And it wasn't a whole, whole lot, but it's um, it's tonal and rhythmic and... Some of the rhythms I was not, you know, I was like, I don't even know where one is. Still don't. But, you know, I realized learn it like a kindergartner. Like like you just, you don't care about that. Just It is, just is. And, um, and I did, and I, I had so much fun with it. It's also connecting to the real source of music. Yeah. I mean, that's where it all comes yeah, from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's cool. Diane, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We're looking forward to your performance tonight. Continued success in, Thank you very in much. all that's to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Ooh, this is good. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov. Welcome back. And that was an extensive uh, interview uh, with uh, Diane Reeves. And um, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for the early morning hour of Tuesday, uh, September 6, uh, 2022. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now, we want to take a break uh, with uh, the legendary uh, Dinah Washington, and uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, right now we want to take a break uh, with uh, the legendary Diana Washington. I've got bad news, baby, and you're the first to know. Well, I discovered this morning that my wig is 
is about to blow. Well, I've been rocking on my feet and I've been talking all out of my head. Talking all out of my head And when I get through talking I can't remember a thing I've said Now I used to be a sharpie All dressed in the latest style But now I'm walking down Broadway Wearing nothing but a smile I see all kinds of little men Although they're never there I try to push a subway train And put whiskey in my hair I'm a gal who blew a few I've got those blows I blew Last night I was five feet tall Today I'm eight feet ten Every time I fall downstairs I float right up again When someone turned the lights on me, it like to drove me blind. I woke up this morning in Bellevue, but I've left my mind behind. I'm a gal you can't excuse, cause I've got those blows of blue.
I'm Oscar Brown Jr. on the Jazz Scene USA. Among the hundreds of fine musicians jazz has produced, some are noted for the heartwarming beauty of their music, others for the brilliance of their instrumental technique. It isn't very often that you find true inspiration combined with total virtuosity. One exception to that rule is the amazing young man in the spotlight today. You don't have to take my word for it, of course. The only requirements are Phineas Newborn's hands and your attentive ears as he plays his own theme for Basie.
That was theme for Basie, named for a musician who heard Phineas Newborn ten years ago in Memphis. And Basie swears he hasn't recovered yet. A reviewer once said that Phineas has a command of the instrument to make other pianists weep and the ability to translate into immediate action any thought that comes into his head. Even among classical pianists who perform set compositions, the complete virtuoso is a rarity. But when you get into jazz and a great deal of improvisation is called for, the demands on the player are almost forbidding. Phineas has a background of years of intensive study as a concert pianist. You might assume this from the way he incorporates a Ravel sonatine as an introduction into his next performance. From his recent album, A World of Piano, Phineas plays the durable Billy Strayhorn melody, Lush Life.
One night, years ago, when the late Art Tatum and the first great Bach pianist Bud Powell were both working at Birdland in New York, Art acted a little sarcastic toward Bud. He called him a one-handed piano player who relied entirely on his right hand. Well, the next night, Bud walked in, sat down at the piano, and played the whole set with nothing but his left hand. Tatum apologized, and that night they buried the hatchet and went out together and had a ball. I'm telling you this little anecdote because Spinius shows a Bud Powell influence as well as a Tatum-like facility, and because the next newborn opus is blues for the left hand only. When a jazz musician has a formidable technique, sometimes people assume that it must be acquired at the expense of a soul. Critics throughout the years have said this kind of thing about everybody from Art Tatum on down. But if you want the real answer, just listen to the wonderful, tender, warm Phineas Newborn along with Al McKibben and Kenny Dennis. 
instills into this traditional 16-bar pattern with its very subtle altered chords. It's called the New Blues.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a recording uh, featuring uh, Phineas uh, Newborn Jr., uh, hosted uh, by Oscar Brown Jr. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Monday, uh, September 5th, and the early morning hour of Tuesday, September 6th, uh, 2022. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, for uh, this broadcast and the entire series uh, connected with the uh, Detroit uh, Jazz Festival over the Labor Day weekend uh, in uh, 2022. And uh, we've been able to enjoy uh, the music of uh, many uh, great artists, including uh, Choco Valdez, uh, Diane Reeds, and uh, so many others uh, that have graced, Abdullah Ibrahim, that have graced uh, the city of Detroit uh, just this last past weekend. And uh, right now we're going to close out our program with the legendary Duke Ellington. This is taken from an album entitled The Afro-Eurasian Eclipse. This is uh, Abayome Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Uh, this is really the Shinwazari. Uh, last year, uh, we about this time, we premiered a new suite titled the Afro-Eurasian Eclipse. And, of course, the title was inspired by a statement made by Mr. Marshall McLuhan of the University of Toronto. Mr. McLuhan says that the whole world is going oriental and that no one will be able to retain his or her identity, not even the orientals. And, of course, we travel around the world a lot, and in the last five or six years, we, too, have noticed this thing to be true. So as a result, we have done a sort of a thing, a parallel or something, and we'd like to play a little piece of it for you. In this particular segment, ladies and gentlemen, we have adjusted our perspective to that of the kangaroo and the didgeridoo. This automatically throws us either down, under, and or out, back. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom? Uh, Harold Ashby has been inducted into the responsibility and the obligation of possibly scraping off a tiny bit of the charisma of his chinoiserie immediately after our piano player has completed his Riki Tiki.
Thank you.